Would you please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. Exodus chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. So, as you are hopefully aware by now, we are busy with a series that's called In the Beginning, and we are studying the book of Genesis. Pastor Clive has done a wonderful job with the first two chapters, and I have no doubt that his next installment is going to be worth the additional week's wait. But as I step in for him this morning, I would like to continue in the book of Genesis but rather going on to chapter 3 and giving you spoilers, I would like to go back to Genesis 1 and 2, but approach it from a little bit of a different angle, building on the foundation that Pastor Clive has laid. That's what makes God's Word so amazing, is that uh, we could preach sermon after sermon after sermon on the same passage, and we'd still have something to say, because there's just too much to cover in one session. So we're going to look at Genesis 1, but I want to begin by taking a detour through Exodus chapter 3 uh, for reasons that will become clear later. Now this is Moses, uh, his first encounter with God, who appeared to him in, in a burning bush, and he told him that he must free the Israelites from their Egyptian slavery. And Moses said to God, I am going to the children of Israel and will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. When they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, you will say this to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Thank you, Lord, as we now open your word. We pray that you would bless the reading, bless the, the sermon, Lord, that that which is from you will be amplified, Lord, and that which is from my human heart would be downplayed and forgotten, Lord, so that you might receive all glory and honor uh, from our time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I said this morning in our 9 o'clock class, it's, it's critical that we take time to explore the context of any Bible book that we read. Okay? It's especially true of the book of Genesis. Because often we as Christians jump into the Bible and we grab onto a verse in the middle of a paragraph, in the middle of a narrative, in the middle of a book, and we claim a verse for ourselves without having any understanding who it was written to, why it was written, and how that verse fits in with the rest of Scripture. Okay, the classic case of that is uh, uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 11, which everyone today claims as a promise from God for themselves, but no one claims Jeremiah 29, verse 17 and 18, which is also a promise from God. Now, I want you to go and study the, the context of that uh, chapter carefully as homework, but back to Genesis this morning. So it's important that we uh, know what we are dealing with when we start to read and uh, study the book of Genesis. Now, I've lost count of how many times people in church have said, Genesis is not a science textbook and it wasn't meant to be but then they use that fact as an excuse to uh, explain away or to obscure the plain meaning of the text. Now, if we look at the book in its context, okay, it's, uh, we have to say that it's true. It was not written to provide modern man with exhaustive scientific uh, explanations. But whenever Genesis or the rest of the Bible 
does speak about scientific things is always accurate and without fault. We don't have to doubt that. But the fact that the book does not answer many of the questions that we would ask does not make it untrue or simply a myth or a metaphor or just nice stories that we tell our kids or a collection of poetic writings. You see, the biblical account of creation is not the only account that we have. It's not even the oldest account that we have in terms of written documentation. We find creation myths in every culture. But what do I mean by myth? Uh, listen to this explanation from the uh, World History Encyclopedia. It says that uh, mythology is literally the spoken story of a people. It's the study and the interpretation of often sacred tales or fables of a culture, or it's the collection of such stories which deal with various aspects of the human condition, such as good and evil, the meaning of suffering, human origins, the meaning of life and death, and celestial stories about the gods or a god. So myths express the beliefs and values about these subjects that are held by a certain culture. At their most basic level, myths bring comfort by giving a sense of order and meaning to what sometimes seems to be a chaotic world. So creation myths are stories that uh, tend to provide answers to the following questions. How did everything come into existence? Who created the world and what can be known about him or them? Where did humanity come from? What is our story? Where did it all go wrong? Because clearly the world is not as it should be. And then how should we live in the light of this knowledge? So the main purpose of the book of Genesis is to provide the true answers to these questions. And this will begin to make sense as we look at who wrote the book of Genesis. Now it's clear that the book of Genesis was written by Moses. But not surprisingly, this is disputed today. N.T. Wright says, if you still believe that the, the book of Genesis was written by Moses, you're in the minority. According to modern scholars, uh, the book was put together from various sources about 700 years after the time of Moses. But we see that uh, Jesus and the New Testament authors all say that uh, the Pentateuch or the Torah or the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses. Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 46 and 47, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And Romans 10, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is based on the law. Okay, so if it's good enough for Jesus and Paul, then it's good enough for me. But Moses was the most qualified man for the job. If you remember that he grew up as an Egyptian in the palace of the Pharaoh. So he was extremely well educated in reading and in writing. Um, he was well acquaint, uh, and acquainted with the uh, Egyptian religion, with the Egyptian gods, with their creation story. But he also had access to all the available knowledge from uh, other Near Eastern cultures. But the book had another author, one who is even more disputed today than Moses. That is God, the Holy Spirit. You see, no one else was there when God created the earth. 
Who was going to tell Moses what it was like except God? But because God the Holy Spirit inspired Moses, he gives a perfect eyewitness account of the events. Do you remember that 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 says that all Scripture is inspired by God? Now the Greek there is the word theonistos. It's literally all Scripture is God-breathed. So over and over uh, in the Pentateuch, we also read that Moses wrote. In Exodus 17 verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and rehearse it to Joshua. And Exodus 24, verse 4, Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. So it's important to understand that when Moses wrote uh, Genesis and Genesis 1 and 2, um, he did so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Okay? He had knowledge of all these other cultures, and he didn't say, well, let me sit down and invent a story uh, that's going to be more believable just because it's unique. It was written under the inspiration of God. So now, would you please turn with me to Genesis 1, verse 1, as we compare uh, this account to some of the other creation myths we find all over the world. So Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the deep, the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. So if we look at the uh, Rig Veda or the Indian myth, it says that before the divine pair of earth and sky who created the gods was another god, Tvastir, the first fashioner. He created the earth and sky as a dwelling place and he created many other things. Uh, he made all the other things reproduce. And although Tvastir was the first uh, dynamic force, before him were the inanimate, inactive cosmic waters. If you look at the Chinese myth, heaven and earth were in a state of chaos or a cosmic egg for 18,000 years. When it broke apart, the high and clear formed the heaven and the dark formed the earth and the god Panku stood in the middle supporting and stabilizing the heavens. The Egyptian myth says, uh, actually there are quite a few different uh, Egyptian stories, and they also change over time, but one of them says that uh, there was a chaos goose and a chaos gander which produced an egg which was the sun, called Ra. Uh, when the gods left the earth to reside in the sky world, the pharaohs inherited the right to rule, and they were considered sons of the sun god Ra. The Babylonian or Mesopotamian myth says that Apsu and Tiamat, the fresh water and salt water, mixed together and created the great and very noisy gods. Apsu wished to kill them, but Tiamat uh, didn't want to, and she prevailed. And uh, in the battle, Apsu was killed, so Tiamat sought revenge. A man named Marduk killed Tiamat and divided her, using part for creating the earth and part for creating the heavens. Okay, and lastly, the Persian, Persian myth or Zoroastrian myth is in the beginning, truth or goodness fought against lies or evil, or chaos, until lies was worn out. Truth then created a world also from a cosmic egg, but then lies awoke and tried to destroy creation. 
It was largely successful, but in the end, it was locked inside the capsule of creation. Okay, so on a side note, this is why it's important to come to church, because you've got pastors and teachers who read this nonsense so that you don't have to. Okay? But we see many parallels in these stories. The presence of chaos, of water, of a cosmic egg, etc., right at the beginning. But the Bible, in uh, verse 1, teaches that God created ex nihilo, out of nothing. Read Hebrews 11, chapter 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was framed by the word of God, so that things that are seen were not made out of things which are visible. So, most of these uh, creation myths, you have creation from chaos. You don't have creation from nothing. You've got creation from something already existing. It's almost like they take Genesis uh, 1 verse 2. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And they start there. Okay, they conveniently ignore verse 1. But even when you have uh, other creation myths that are about a creation out of nothing, usually uh, the potential and the actual substance of creation springs from the creator itself, such as uh, the creator sweats or secretes liquid, and this becomes uh, the world. So, in other words, in many other creation myths, uh, the world is a small part of God and can actually therefore be worshipped in some way or another. But the, the biblical God is separate from his creation. Okay, no part of him was used in the creation of the world. He is uh, wholly other than his creation, and he alone is to be worshipped. Nothing that he has made is to be worshipped alongside of him. But God's act of creation also rules out the idea that the universe has eternally existed. As Aristotle, uh, some other philosophers, and modern scientists have asserted, okay? God alone is the eternal being. We also see throughout these creation myths that the gods are created beings themselves. Okay? They're dependent upon others for their existence. Whereas Moses makes no argument for God, he doesn't tell us what God was doing before he created uh, in eternity past. He just says, in the beginning, God was there and he created. We also see in these creation myths that they almost always involve many gods. And these gods war amongst each other for supremacy. Uh, in the Greek uh, mythology, Zeus, who was the mighty thunderer, the chief of the gods, uh, he overthrew his father, Cronus, who had driven his father away. Okay, so there's always this idea that the gods are in tension with each other, and if war should break out, one might replace the other one at the top of the food chain. So these gods are by no means omnipotent, they are not all-knowing, and they are certainly not loving, as the God of the Bible is. It's also very important to understand that these gods were tied to specific geographical areas. They were tied to the land. So if your tribe came and conquered my tribe, that means your gods were stronger than my gods. So the Israelites were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. They had a pretty good understanding that when God came and he freed them and rescued them from the Egyptians, it involved the defeat of the Egyptian gods. So if you look at verse 3 of uh, Genesis 1, God said, let there be light, and there was light. So God creates light on day one, but we read in verse 16, God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. 
He made the stars also. So God creates the sun, the moon, and the stars on day four. Is that a contradiction? No. God is almighty. He doesn't need the sun to produce light. And I believe he created in this order specifically so that human beings would not be tempted to worship the sun or to worship the pharaohs as the sons of the sun god. We just have to take a moment and say that uh, the glory of the night sky, all of the stars that we can see, is this, you know, this creation of this wonderful thing is summed up in he made the stars also. Okay, that's incredible. But if we look at human creation, Genesis 1, verse 26 to 27, God, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So if we return to our creation uh, myths, the Chinese myth says that uh, parasites that were feeding on the body of the god Pianku were impregnated by the wind and gave birth to human beings. The Babylonian uh, myth says that Ea and the birth goddess Nintu created human beings out of the blood of Tiamat's defeated general, Kingu, uh, which was mingled with clay from the earth and with spittle from the other gods. In the Egyptian myth, human beings were created from the eye of Ra. This happened when the eye separated from Ra and it failed to return. So two gods, uh, Shu and Tefnut, were sent to fetch it back, but the eye resisted, and in the ensuing struggle, the eye shed tears from which humans were born. In the Zoroastrian or Persian myth, in the cosmic battle between truth and lies, the seed of the cosmic man escaped was purified and returned to earth as a plant with stalks growing from either side that were to be the first man and woman. So in these myths, we see that human beings were uh, created accidentally, unexpectedly, and uh, the gods now puzzle over what we must do with these creatures. Or human beings were made by the gods, but they were made by uh, bringing together all the spare parts that could be found to sort of fashion something cobble together a human being. We also read that in these myths, uh, your relationship with the God is based on quid pro quo. Okay, if you want the gods to do something for you, you have to do something for them. The most effective way to get a God on your side was through human sacrifice of some kind. But Genesis tells us that man was created in the image of the triune God. It says, let us make man in our image. God created us uh, in his love and his grace. We were made for relationship with him. We were made to worship him. We were made to play an integral role in God's creation. We have a purpose and we have responsibility. We are not an afterthought. We are not an accident. But God did not make man and then step back and have him figure out the universe by himself. It was also not the case that man went searching for God and, and found him through really believing or through doing enough good works. The Bible tells us that God revealed himself to mankind. God spoke to mankind. There's no way we could ever have known God if he did not reveal himself to us first. We see this in Genesis uh, 1 verse 28. Uh, 
God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed which is on the face of the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. To every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, which has the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So evening and morning were the sixth day. So if we read in Genesis uh, 2, we skip a little ahead, Genesis 2, verse 15 to 17, Uh, And in Genesis chapter 2, from verse 4, you have a zooming in uh, on day 6 and the creation of man and the planting of the Garden of Eden. But in verse 15, The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree in the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Right, so God speaks to mankind. Right, he revealed himself. And notice how the name of God changes. We have, uh, in chapter 1, we have God. God spoke. God create, created. God said. Uh, the word there is Elohim. And uh, in Hebrew, the word Elohim means might and power. Okay, so we've got the mighty and powerful God creating the universe and creating the animals and light and darkness, and the sun and the moon and the stars. Uh, But then, when we get to chapter 2, it changes, and we see that the name there is uh, the Lord God. Lord God, that is uh, Jehovah or Yahweh Elohim. In other words, that's God's covenant name. That's his name that was given to him by Israel. Okay, And it points to the fact that when God is involved with human beings, he's not a distant, mighty, unapproachable God. He's a relational God. And He actually comes down to us. Okay? He condescends to us, is the big English word. But He comes to us and He uh, has relationship with us even though He doesn't need us. Okay? He's a, not an impersonal force, a God who created the world and then left it to be. He is involved with His creation. But then, interestingly, in Genesis Chapter 2, verse 19, uh, Adam sees God create. Okay, in verse 19 it says, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So this is a special act of creation in the garden. Um, It's not a reference to when God created on day 5. But God showed Adam. He didn't say... This is the world that I created. He says, let me show you. This is what I created. And I can create out of the ground. I can create out of water. I can create out of nothing. Um, and Adam witnessed that. Okay? In action. So what we see from Genesis 1 and, and 2 is that how God is different from all the other gods. In uh, all likelihood, Moses wrote his uh, five books during the 40 years of wandering in the desert. The Israelites had left behind Egypt and the Egyptian gods. But Moses knew, and of course God knew, that when they entered the promised land, they would encounter all sorts of new gods, new myths, and new lives. And they would be tempted to forsake 
the God of the Bible and to follow after these. So the, the plea of Genesis 1 and 2 then is to remember that God is unlike all the other gods. He alone is everlasting, all-powerful, and truly gracious and loving. He alone is worthy of glory, of honor, and of worship. There is none like him. This is why in Exodus 3, verse 14, when God appears to Moses, the one man who was best qualified to try and put together an uh, explanation or an analogy of what God is like to explain it to the people, God simply says, tell them that I am sent you. See, I am not like the sun god or the river god or the sky god. There's no comparison to be made between me and the false gods. There's no way that you can explain me to the Israelites or try to make sense of me, Moses. Yet we see that this God throughout the Bible uh, continues to reveal himself and his truth at the right times. He doesn't remain hidden or obscure. We also see that the people of Israel were to remember that they were created by God for a relationship with him. The Canaanite gods didn't make them. They didn't care about them. And following after these false gods would only lead to great sorrow, despair, and ultimately judgment from the true God. It's very much a warning uh, against idolatry. So we spoke earlier about uh, how the purpose of the book of Genesis is to answer our questions. How did everything come into existence? Well, God spoke it into being. He stands above creation and he's not a part of it. Who created the world and, and what can be known about him? That he is one God, not many. The everlasting, the mighty and gracious God. Natural revelation, what he called it, the beauty and the wonder of creation, uh, testify to the greatness and goodness of God. It's visible to all humanity. We see that in Psalm 19 and Romans 1. Uh, and its testimony is so strong that it renders all people guilty for not worshipping their Creator. In other words, from creation we cannot know God exhaustively, but we can know enough to realize that there is a God that is worthy of our worship. Where did humanity come from? What is our story? God created human beings not as an afterthought or an accident, but as the crown of His creation that we have purpose and meaning in this life and on this earth. But we also have a responsibility to live in obedience to him. Genesis then goes on uh, in later chapters to give a detailed account of how Israel as a nation came to be. Now where did it all go wrong? Because clearly the world is not as it should be. We'll get to that part in the next couple of weeks. Finally, how should we live in the light of this knowledge? Okay, now that we know the original context, how do we as God's people apply Genesis 1 and 2 to our own lives today? Surely, Brother Louis, you'd say, we know better. We're not tempted to follow after false gods and make sacrifices to them. But there are still idols that many people, even Christians, follow after. Fame, or money, sex, power, our children... We need to repent of these if, like the Israelites, we think we can belong to God and follow after these idols at the same time. We must worship God alone. But the biggest danger in our age is that of secularism. Secularism, the rejection of the idea that God exists. That man is the supreme being, 
on the earth. It's a denial of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. You see, in the modern theory of evolution, there are no gods involved in creation. Human beings are simply a cosmic accident. If the whole process had to be restarted, we probably would not come into existence again, or we would be radically different. So secularism is a rejection of God's uh, creation, but it's also a rejection of God's creation order that he established. So these days, uh, men can become women and vice versa. Marriage, which is made for one man and one woman, uh, must be open to all genders, even to those who want three or four or five people in a marriage. It means we can kill unwanted human babies at will. And because mankind has no ultimate purpose, we can define reality to fit our needs and we can do what we can to enjoy our lives before we die. We are free to throw off all chains, to break all laws, because we are in charge. But Genesis 1 and 2 calls on us to acknowledge the triune God of the Bible as our creator, to remember who made us and why he made us, and for us to bow down on our knees before him and to say, not my will, O God, but your will be done in my life and forevermore. So, based on my argument and all the information that I've given you this morning, I'm going to conclude by making a radical statement. If the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 is not an actual account of how God created the world and human beings, if it's metaphorical or simply meant to be taken as poetic language, it loses all its punch. It loses all its relevance. Here are all these creation myths that we know didn't happen in the way that they are described. Let me give you our creation myth that we all know didn't happen as it was described. But it's really nice poetry. Exodus 20 verse 11 says that, For in six days God made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. So as we go into this new week, let us go boldly and let us go and tell the world that I am has sent us to share his good news. Amen. Lord, thank you that you created us for relationship with you. Lord, to share in the goodness of who you are, to share in uh, the wonder of your power in creating and sustaining this world. Lord, but also to know that we are meant to live with you forever. And that is... Uh, why you have called us to yourself. And I pray that there's so many distractions in the world, Lord, so many other excuses for not following after you, for not being dedicated to you, for not following you wholeheartedly. I pray that we would lay all those aside and seek to serve you and to obey you and to fulfill the creation mandate that you gave to our father, Adam. And we pray for those who do not know you, Lord, who are following after myths and lies and stories and thinking that we can do it our own way. We don't need you. We don't need God. May you bring them to repentance, Lord. For we know that there's a day of judgment coming when all of us will stand before you to give an account of our lives. And none of us would survive if we are not covered by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we go into this, this week, Lord, may we boldly go and be a testimony of the fact that you changed our lives at work, at our families, get-togethers with people, 
and in our everyday little things that we do. May we bring glory to you. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. So this is quite a heavy message this morning. So before we sing our last hymn, I would like to strengthen and encourage you uh, with this blessing from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 to 21. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Please uh, stand with us.